0: Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Don Richardson, at the ripe old age of 27. I say that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. 27, the ripe old age of 27. My oldest is 26. Don Richardson, at 27, rode a dugout canoe into the swampy lowlands of Irinjawa, so named at that time, I imagine most of us would be hard-pressed. I had to look it up to find Jawa. The year was 1962. This section of the globe was, at that time, one of the most remote areas on the face of the earth. Richardson wanted to share the gospel with a people group that had never even met someone from outside their culture, let alone never heard the name of Jesus. Irenjawa is today in Indonesia. I put Hawaii on the map. I hope you can see, yeah. To give us some geographic proximity, it's a part of the island known as Papua New Guinea, small island north of Australia. And up until 62, the people that populated that island were, for the most part, cut off from the rest of the world. Can you imagine a culture so unaffected by the spread of technology, modern civilization? These tribes were still hunting with spears made of bamboo and fighting each other with bows and arrows in 62. Don and his wife and their six-month-old baby. Take a look at this picture. Arrived by float plane on the edge of the jungle and then canoed canoed 40 miles inland through crocodile and python-infested waters. Anybody feeling courageous? I'm feeling kind of wimpy. They did so to share the good news of the message of Christ's death and resurrection with a people, a tribe named the Sawi, S-A-W-I. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. But the message wasn't easily understood for any number of reasons. The first reason is they didn't speak the language. It took them months to bridge the the language barrier, but then a second barrier existed to explaining the gospel. That is the barrier of ethics, cultural ethics, in that the Sawi tribal group held in high esteem ethics that are the polar opposite of Christ's ethics. For example, one of the most esteemed ethics taught within the SAI culture was that of treachery and betrayal. Around the campfires, uh, the SAI parents would tell their children stories. Imagine bedtime stories in our culture. They would tell their children stories of the heroes of the community, and invariably the heroes of the community were those who had cultivated friendships with people in other tribes for the primary purpose, if not the sole purpose, of betraying that friend, that new friend, to death, cutting off their head and hanging it in their lodge as a trophy. you communicate the gospel of self-sacrifice and selflessness to a people group who holds in high esteem treachery and betrayal. In fact, when Don Richardson got to the place in the gospel narrative, when he's trying to describe Judas's role, the saw he lit up, oh, here's the hero. Judas was highly esteemed as the the hero, the one that had befriended someone for the purpose of betraying them, and he carried out their betrayal to the point of death. In a strange and twisted way, they saw Jesus as weak and foolish, a victim, who should have known better than to trust someone who had befriended them from outside the family. How would Jesus ever be embraced and revered by a culture so opposite of Christian ethics? Folks, that's our situation. How do we communicate Christ in a culture that values much that's contrary to Christ? The Apostle Paul was wrestling with the same reality in today's passage. In fact, it was Paul's example that drove the Richardson family to do some geographic um, and cultural border crossing. This cross-cultural work they saw in the New Testament, and so the Richardson's picked up and they, they traveled across the globe. The Apostle Paul's goal was to persuade first-century Greek culture to embrace the idea that God himself had come in the flesh, that Jesus, born in Nazareth, was God in human flesh. Like the Sali, though, the Greeks had their own cultural understanding of deity, and it did not include bodily incarnation. In the Greek culture, the body, the material world, was seen as corrupted and fallen and broken, and deity would never inhabit the corrupted reality in which we live. God would never condescend in that manner. So how does Paul bridge that gap? How do we bridge the cultural gaps that we face in our efforts to communicate the gospel as good news to friends and family and neighbors and fellow students and coworkers? Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Acts chapter 17. Get ready to follow along as I detail, as we read together Paul's efforts to reach the Athenians, famous city of Athens, many of the places Paul, well, the place that Paul preached in today's passage, you can visit today, and there's a plaque there that has in relief, bronzed relief, the words of Paul right where he preached. As you're turning in to Acts 17 in your copy of the scripture, let me introduce myself if you're a guest this morning. And I've met several guests. Special welcome to you. My name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's a delight to open God's word with you. And it's our prayer that our guests feel a deep sense, an increasing sense of belonging as they're with us in worship each week. We'd encourage you to stop by the welcome booth after the service out in the welcome center, a little table. It's got a book on it that I've written. It talks about our aim as a church, what we're focused on, We're trying to help each other, and we're eager to help one another follow after Jesus, what we believe that means. I should also mention, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a sermon series. We're making our way through the second half of the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys. He's in his second journey. The title of the series is Together for the Gospel. We are together for the gospel. Lord willing, the Spirit will work in our lives in such a way that we'll more keenly understand the gospel and we'll be better empowered to share it. Um, in the days ahead. In today's passage, Paul has just arrived in Athens, Greece, having uh, left Berea uh, fairly quickly, feeling, feeling it was wisest to leave Berea. Uh, the Thessalonians showed up there, kind of chased him out. They had chased, chased him out of Thessalonica, and he was escorted to Athens for his own safety. Uh, Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Berea to do some work, and then they're going to join him there. We're in verse 16 of chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy and Luke, who's writing the narrative. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. And if if you're an underliner circle, or if you mark up your copy of the scripture, I would encourage just greatly distressed. Here's my question for us. Are we greatly distressed by the idolatry we see in our modern culture? Are we only moderately distressed? Are we not distressed at all? He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned. I would circle reasoned. So he reasoned. His distress led him to reason. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. Many of you guys work out in the marketplace. I don't work in the marketplace. I work in and for the church. uh, Ephesians 4.12, my job description is to equip the saints for works of service. But many of you are in the marketplace. Take note, Paul was distressed by what he met with in the marketplace, and his response was to reason with them about the gospel. Then it names some of the folks that he reasoned with, that he tried to engage with the gospel. A group of Epicurean, I'm in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, so he got a rise out of some folks. and they, they engaged with him back. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, new ideas. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. and in, in particular, the resurrection would have sh- struck them as new, and if you do some digging, uh, as scholars Uh, believe that the Athenians thought this was a new God named resurrection. They didn't get it, that someone would overcome death. Then they took him and brought him to a a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. And then parenthetically, Luke notes, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. They liked the exchange of ideas. They liked debate. And the Areopagus was the place that that happened. It was the cultural center. Let's pause there for a minute, uh, define some terms. Paul debates with the philosophers of Greece. He names uh, two in particular, the Epicureans and the Stoic uh, philosophers. Here's a picture of Raphael's, interpretation. So the picture dates from 1515, 16th century. Jim, do we have that picture? 16th century painting of Raphael, by Raphael of Paul engaging at the Areopagus with with the philosophers. Epicureans, just as a little background, and you don't need to know this, but you need to be challenged by it because we have a similar work to do in our culture. The Epicureans were materialists. They thought all that was real, or the only thing that was real, was what you could sense with your five senses, right? The body was real. And their philosophy boiled down to pain avoidance and pleasure experience. You could say Americans are Epicurean. Pain avoidance, pleasure experience. The shows I watch, they keenly know... The television ad people know who the age group that's watching these shows because all of the commercials are about drugs that I'm to self-prescribe, uh, right? Do you feel this, that, the other? Then take these drugs. Pain avoidance, pleasure experience, right? Epicurean culture, they're materialists. Living for the moment was kind of their charge. Stoics were the phil- philosophical opponents of Epicureans. Uh, It would have been Epicureans versus Stoics until Paul steps in the middle, and so they both turn their guns on Paul, and he's engaging with both of them. Stoics were philosophers of virtue. They said virtue brings happiness. They talked about duty, duty, cultural duty, societal duty, doing your obligations, right? They actually believed duty and fulfilling your duties brought happiness, They advocated not for health and wealth as a pursuit that was Epicurean. Stoics said develop character and you'll know happiness. The Areopagus was this main administrative body. It was the Supreme Court basically of Athens. It was the center of debate. On the screen is a picture of if you visit Greece, you can go to where the Areopagus was. It's that stone outcropping there. and You can stand up there and get a sense for what Paul might have visually seen as he spoke uh, to the philosophers of his day. And there's a plaque on the wall in Greek, Right, if you can read Greek, that details the speech we're about to read of Paul. What's most fascinating to me is Luke's description of how Paul responds to his emotional distress. He is distressed about the culture in which he finds himself. And I've asked us are we distressed by the culture? And how do we respond? Paul responds by reasoning, this is the plaque with the Greek at the Areopagus. Paul responds by reasoning with them. This is important to me because many feel that following Jesus is a result of drawing an unreasonable conclusion. Many believe that following Jesus is brought by what is often described as blind or uninformed leap of faith. It's true that faith is required to believe in something that we have not witnessed ourselves. No one in this room witnessed Christ raised from the grave. But that doesn't mean it's unreasonable to believe that he was, in fact, raised. There are good reasons to believe Christ was raised. We'll revisit those those reasons Sunday morning, April 9th, Easter morning. Suffice it now to say... That reason is our friend. Christian brothers and sisters, God gave us a mind. Reason is our friend. We have nothing to fear in the pursuit, the seeking of truth. In our quest for truth, right? Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, knock. Everybody who asks, seeks, and knocks uh, receives the doors open, they find everybody. We have nothing to fear from the search for truth. In our quest for truth, God willing, right, as we're seeking it, we'll find the man of truth. Jesus said to himself, I am the truth, capital T, the way and the life. Reason is our friend. We have nothing to fear from the life of the mind. Are there lies? Yes. All the more reason to engage our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul stands up, and he's going to reason. Let's see how he does. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, quote, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he's surveyed the culture, and he's come away thinking, well, they are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. The Athenians are playing it safe. Don't want to leave any gods out. Surely, and there's an admission here. I love this. There's an admission. We don't know it all. There is a God out there that we probably don't know. So they're religious. Yes, they're idolatrous. But they have an admission, a cultural admission. There's something we don't know. And there Paul inserts the gospel. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I want to talk to you about the God you don't know. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He sustains us. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul's about to say. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. God is the controller of historic events, their boundaries, the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. We have nothing to fear in the search for truth. Though he is not far from any of us, he can be found. God can be known. Then he quotes, all right? Verse 26, uh, 28 is a quote from their poets. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting back to them something they'll be familiar with to help in an effort to prove the point that God's sovereign over history and peoples, and he's provided for us. As some of your own poets, poets have said, we are his offspring, close quote. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. We're not like idols. We're not made of gold or silver or stone, so our creator's not made that way. An image made by human design and skill. No, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent. If you're an underliner, circler, he's reasoning, he's upset emotionally about what he sees. He's reasoning with them and calling them to repentance. Verse 31, for he has said, why repent? For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, a man, he has appointed. Who is that man? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They made fun. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. That that Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed Among them was Dionysus, clearly a Greek name, a member of the Areopagus, so the highest cultural echelon, right? He's a member. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So Paul does have, he's got converts there through this speech. So God commanded all people everywhere, verse 30, to do what? To repent. Why? Because a day of judgment is ahead where we'll stand before our creator and give an account for how we lived. And we know that we've all fallen short, that sin is real in our lives. And so we need to turn from the sin that we've cultivated. In Athens, there were idols all over the city. Turn from those idols to the unknown God that Paul's preaching to them. Turn toward Christ and follow him. Turn from sin and idolatry. Turn toward Christ, the man raised, the man appointed. We know he's the judge because he overcame death. Still today, this is the call that God's people are to go into the world with. This is what we're to preach. Confession, confess that you're in sin, forsake your idols, the things you've been bowing to. Turn to Christ, begin to trust him for forgiveness in life eternal. That was Paul's message to the Athenians. That was Don Richardson's message to the Sali tribe. Repent, turn from your sins. That's our message this morning as a church. It's not just my message. We sang as much together before I got up and preached. We preached to one another the need to depend upon Christ wholly and solely. If you've not confessed and forsaken your sin and began the trusting lifestyle in Christ, you can do that right where you're seated. You can begin your relationship of dependence Trusting in in the one God has provided. Trusting in the one that's been given as a judge of humanity, Jesus. Trusting in the one who's overcome death. Trusting in the one who's reasonable to believe in. Paul urged the Athenians to do it, and we know that at least two were converted. Right where you're seated this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, we'd urge you to do so. You can say something to God As simple as I see sin in my life, and I see that I turn to idols instead of you, I want to trust in your son. It doesn't even have to be those exact words. How do I know that? Because I know that if you have a desire to say something like that, it means the spirit of God's already drawing you. No one desires to say that unless the spirit's at work in their lives drawing them because we're saved apart from anything we do. Our desire to confess and forsake idols is something that God cultivates in our lives. It's not something that we muster up. We'd urge you to do it. We'd urge you to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. If you have a desire to make that confession, he's already bringing you to trust. He's bringing you to new life. Man, I'd love to talk with you after the service. If that's a a prayer you've prayed, today. Standing in the Areopagus, the center of Greek culture, it's fascinating to consider how Paul tries to cross the cultural divide. He was not speaking to a Jewish audience, so he didn't, he didn't offer Old Testament text. He's working really hard to speak to Greeks with Greek understanding about the truths of the gospel. Exactly what Don Richardson was doing. How did Paul do it? He notes that there are religious people. Verse 23 As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. They were spiritual, they were religious but they they didn't understand how to express that appropriately. They had a point of humility, confessing, there's somebody out there, God, we don't know. We'll just put that placard at the base of this idol. Our work is the same work. To see in culture indications that people have spiritual desires, spiritual longings, and speak to those longings. You know the best way to identify spiritual longings in unsaved family and friends, schoolmates, coworkers, the marketplace, wherever you found yourself, the American culture, look at the idols that they set up in their lives. And I know that in 21st century America, they don't set up physical idols, but we no less bow to and give our devotion to things other than what, who Christ is, other than what God, who God is. And so if you can spot the idols, you can work your way back to the longings that's all Paul's doing. He saw the idol to the unknown God. He said that they have a longing to worship. Let me tell you who that is. Even in your errant worship, let me help you understand who you were created to worship. Pascal, I believe it was, said we have this God-shaped void. Every human has longings And we're either turning to our creator to meet them or we're turning to our idols to meet them. So he he quotes poets from their culture. Verse 28: For in him we live and move and have our being. Hey, you yourself wrote these lines, these are from Greek culture. You know that it's God who's created us. We're not, we didn't create ourselves, we owe obedience to somebody. And then the next quote, we are his offspring. We're made in his image is what he's getting at. We don't worship idols, things made by hands because we weren't made out of gold and silver. No, we were made out of the dust of the earth and life was breathed into us by a creator being. To him we owe our allegiance. So he's doing this cultural work. Do we see the need in the American culture? I'll give you one example. There are, in fact, countless indications that Americans are spiritually interested, a religious people. There are any number of jumping-off points for conversation to talk about spiritual longings pointed towards idols instead of spiritual longings submitted to our creator of heaven and earth. Even things that our culture satirizes makes fun of. Take, for example, the most recent Grammy Award show, at which time Kim Petraeus and Sam Smith won the award for Best Pop Duo for a song titled Unholy. Their performances of the song include obvious references to evil incarnate, as Sam Smith dressed up as Satan The lyrics and performance are truly unholy. I would not encourage Googling them and watching it. It's not going to be edifying, strengthening. It is, just as the title of the song claims, unholy. I raise it because we can easily use this as an opportunity to say, Oh, what is holiness? Who is holy? Who defines holiness? What does it mean to be holy? What's it mean to be unholy? All these questions are left hanging in the air of the Grammys. We know very well that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is incarnate, Colossians 1.70. He's in the flesh. He is holy. We know, according to Hebrews 2.10, that he was made perfect. That's uh, an element of holiness, perfection. He was made perfect through what he suffered. Oh, you're going to sing about unholiness. You're going to satirize the personification of evil that is evil incarnate. Let me tell you about holiness incarnate. God himself come in the flesh. The Richardson's success in working with the Sahi people hinged upon their ability to bridge the cultural divide, not just condemning the sins present in the culture, but helping the culture understand how the sins committed are indications of errant spiritual longings. We were created with God-given longings, that we either turn to our creator to fulfill or we turn to idols to fulfill them. Lewis said something, and I'm going to, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it has something to do with sin is and temptation is the, the lure of taking the gifts of God to degrees and at times and ways Outside his character. Someone after first service came up and wanted to compare, um, they said, plug in your favorite sin. They said, chocolate is awesome, but you can only have so much of it. There we departed. I didn't agree. No, just joking. <laughs> His point was, the get. We know in First Timothy, every good gift comes from God. Every longing we have, whether holy or unholy, even the unholy longings, even the unholy longings are warped or twisted, longings meant to be met in our Creator and in relationship with Him. In fact, it's a good exercise, and any therapist will do it with your Christian therapist, take the sin that you can't escape and work your way back to the longing you're trying to fill and then do the work of finding out how Christ meets that need. We're keenly aware of our own, well, by God's grace, we're keenly aware of our sin or made keenly aware of our sin. He does that so that we'll find his care so that our deepest longings will ultimately be met in him. I'll work it out in the Sai culture. The Sai culture was, is a tribal culture in 1962 of warring factions that had to keep a certain distance from one another because they didn't trust each other. It's tribe here, tribe there. When the Richardsons came to the, uh, one of the villages, they had so much medical resource the tribes began picking up and moving close to one another because they wanted the medical resource that the Richardsons were offering. As they moved in closer, friction between the tribes escalated such that the Richardsons spent most of their time treating spear wounds, machete wounds, and bow and arrow wounds. Can you imagine seeing somebody you don't like? And we do that with our words. It's no less impactful, right? So violent did things become that the Richardsons thought they were doing no good, that they weren't actually bringing the gospel. They were bringing conflict by bringing resources, which acted like a magnet, escalating tension between the tribes. So they announced that they were going to depart because they had been unhelpful. Ever feel evangelistically unfruitful, like you'd done more damage than good? So they announced that they're going to depart, and the Sahi, they're like, no, do not go. And the tribes that were previously warring decide to make peace. Now remember, these are cultures founded on treachery and betrayal. Self-preservation was secured through betrayal, except there was one exception. And the exception was in the exchange of a peace child. We have a picture here. After the Richardsons announced that they were going to depart because they didn't like the friction that was rising between the tribes and didn't want to be a hindrance to the community's development, the Sahi, the next morning in the Richardsons' front yard, these two tribes came together and the leaders of the tribe exchanged infant boys. Arguably the greatest possession of any human civilization are their young and what they'll grow up to be. And while the mothers were weeping, don't give our children to our enemies, these fathers were exchanging peace child. The exchange of peace, the need for peace, right? We all need peace. We need peace individually. We need it culturally. We need it globally. That's our longing. And we have idols that we serve in in an effort to get peace, or we submit to Christ who gives us peace. You following, this is my best effort for cultural contextualization. The saw you wanted peace. They had a concept of peace. It wasn't simply that they were people of betrayal and treachery. No, the Richardsons just didn't realize that they had a mechanism for peace. The mechanism was the exchange of infant boys between warring tribes. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you, bells and whistles should be going off. The mothers are crying, the men are swapping, and these tribes would forever be at peace as long as these boys grew up and stayed alive and were treated well in the other t- tribes. The problem was, in the Sa'i culture, they had, had terrible infant mortality rates. And so the exchange of uh, peace children like this often was short-lived. Because for one reason or another, an infant would die and then all bets were off and... and It was often thought, well, you did my child wrong and war would break out again. And it occurred to the Richardsons, in their desire to leave, depart, they had finally realized that there was a higher ethic there was a way to make peace. Betrayal was not ethic in the culture, but there's a greater ethic, there's a greater desire. It's peace, but the infant mortality rate undermined it. But Don Richardson in Weed This Morning and Paul in Athens knew of a child who was given to humanity, grew up, admittedly died, but was raised from the grave never to die again. And he communicated that message. Peace is secure forevermore for any who trust in the peace child that was raised from the grave and lives eternal. Isn't that an amazing message? It's a great book too if you want to read it. Do we have that picture? Yeah. Don Richardson spoke from this platform. I think it was like 1999, 2000. It's just a stunning story. Of human longing, folks, the sin that you cannot seem to break. Trace the longing that you're trying to meet in that sin. Trace the longing, greed. Well the longings for security. In him we live and it may be significance. In him, we live and move and have our being. in the sin that you can't seem to address, trace that longing back because christ ha- it's been met in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to pray for your goodness to us and to DuPage County. Would you help us contextualize the gospel as Paul did in Athens, as you enabled Don Richardson to do among the Sawai people, Would you help us do in this 21st century suburban culture? We pray this, Father, that, well, I pray that, we pray that more and more people would come to new life in saving faith in Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.